Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts... Jusain. Montar. Mackie's instantly ready to do it, right? I could probably literally do it in my sleep at this point. It's, we're only at 299 episodes. I mean, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Dan mentioned like episode 160 and then said something about 2012. And I just, I just thought an expletive in my head, basically. Cause, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I still remember episode 100 and I can't believe how long ago that was now. <laughs> so we're going to party like it's 299. Welcome to episode 299 of Polycast. I'm Makalu, who had some technical difficulties making Skype work again. To me as usual, Dan Q. I'd be rolling on the river, but it's frozen over. <laughs> well, it is Canada. The me and team. Bringing the ultimate techniques for rise and fall. Drew Sane. My agenda is betrayal lover. <laughs> and Monthar. Beam me up, because there can be only one. Wait a minute, was that betrayal lover period or betrayal comma lover period? Yes. Dan, it's whatever you think it is. <laughs> also, <laughs> yes. Yes is the better answer. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. Oh, and for those playing Civilization VI on the Mac, you now have the fall 2017 update. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> we, yeah, it's kind of nice to uh, have the people playing the game have the same game, I guess. Well, Although I, I guess because you still can't play cross-platform, I'm sure. No, you can't. Not now. I, I imagine they're trying to work for that eventually. I mean, yeah. that's, that's why. The, that's yeah, why that's totally relevant. Two years after release. Well, well I mean, yeah. that's why, it's not going to be ready the, by then. <laughs> so you know. Well, it's, I imagine it's an experiment for Civ Seven, and why the user interface hmm, kind of feels like more of a mobile game interface than uh, PC. But uh, well, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I think it's perfectly reasonable. When you have cross-platform, then you know the game's complete. A legitimate mobile game interface would not require thousands and thousands of extra you make good jokes, per game. Man. You're welcome. Oh, I agree. Whatever. To our uh, Mac compatriots, because all of us on this panel were, were PC players of Civilization VI, we understand that you're probably looking this at a glass half empty because you had to wait this long for the fall patch. But why don't you look at it as glass half full? We, your PC brethren, beta tested it for you. You're welcome. Yeah, now you too can join the beta. But I thought we're still in the beta. Exactly. We worked out all the bugs for you. We have it documented extensively and how to avoid them. Don't play the game. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. No, we alpha tested it. And y'all get to beta test. We're going to talk about loyalty, we're going to talk about governors, we're going to talk about alliances, and we're going to talk about emergencies. So, loyalty. We've learned a little bit from some uh, screenshots that it's very related to your population, which means that it's going to have a little bit of an effect on wide cities or infinite city sprawls. Because when I look at a, a massive game system like this being added into a game, I often try to think, okay, what is it that the game's balance is requiring the resources for to build this kind of system? 
to change the balance. And I, we know at this point that loyalty is heavily dependent on population of nearby cities. So spamming to uh, low pop cities or settling new cities near big civs will probably be the most likely way to get loyalty flipped. And between this and I think some of the policy card changes, there's some cards that are going to be only available if you have pop 10 on your cities to get the multiplicative bonuses on yields. I'm getting the impression that some of RNF's design is to roll back the value of ICS with low pop cities and try to make empires with maybe 10 cities optimally. That's kind of the idea I get. I don't see it as that bad potentially because when you're looking at it where's this going to influence you the most it's going to influence like super early forward settlements into a nation that has multiple other cities so you're gonna have instant loyalty pressure if you settle too far away so it'll help with the forward settlements it'll help to some degree with uh, just weak cities that you conquer and then you don't do anything about it so you're gonna have to worry about that if you're expanding it's gonna make overseas expansion very painful potentially Uh, we'll see But that's one of those areas where I think it'll be significantly harder. Although if you have the Navy to just blow up the cities when they declare independence, maybe not too bad, but it's there. But as long as you have some cities that are applying loyalty pressure and you're managing your governors, I think you're still going to be able to get away with a lot of smaller cities. You just don't want to leave smaller cities where you're getting loyalty pressed. And uh, so there's some planning there when it comes to it. But cities aren't just going to flip because... We did mention on the last episode, but it's worth reiterating, that if you want additional trade routes, you're going to not just have to construct a commercial hub, but you also need a market in there in order to get an extra trade route. And similarly, the lighthouse will do that for the harbor to earn the extra trade route. But you also mentioned, Drew, changes to existing policy cards. Right now, we've got this wonderful benefit of, hey, I want some more money. I'm going to settle this one pop city, I can place down a district. Oh, here, I'm going to start constructing a commercial hub. Oh, look at that. There's some forests nearby, or there's something that there's a hill that I can mine so I can get that production and I can construct that in 20 turns or less on online speed. And hey, I've got an extra trade route. Well, there's there, now you've got to construct the market on top of it. But then there's also, hey, we would just run that the free market policy. That's going to give us plus 100% from all of our buildings within it. Well, you are going to earn extra gold from buildings and commercial hubs, but only if the city is population 10 or higher will get you plus 50%, and then plus 50% of a district has at least plus four adjacency bonuses. So another reason to not just go infinite city sprawl in addition to the whole loyalty factor, because yeah, forward settling is one thing because you want to be able to block the AI, but are you going to be able to settle that city and keep that city from flipping, which is where the governors come into play. But if that city's already well established, who knows how the pressure is going to work out on, on the balance there. You might have to be like, okay, I'm only going to settle this city when I'm getting prepared to attack this next civ in the next X number of turns, so then I can take their city that's already applying pressure to my city so it doesn't turn around and flip on me. Yeah. The market change is a little weird to me because it's not like it was particularly difficult or expensive to build those buildings, but you were going to build them anyway. It's just a little bit of a delay to me. I'm not entirely sure what exactly the reasoning was behind it. I think that's the point, though. You, if you push back the timing it takes for a city to start paying for the investment and give back, in other words, like how quickly are you getting gold back from it or production back from it? Adding the market requirement does substantially turn back the rate at which a newly placed city will be useful. And I'm OK with that. It also does sort of uh, slow down the game a little bit. And I mean, there's two things that we know now that it kind of slow down science. And that's one 
that Eureka's and Inspirations are now 40% boost instead of 50%. We also know that this may change toward the end, but uh, right now, um, science per population was 0.7 per population, and now it is 0.5. Pretty big nerf. They really want to slow down the, the science a little bit in this game and therefore slow down the game in general. You have it. You get the rework on the pop stuff when it comes to multiplicative as applied to campus districts as well. That's a good uh, point. So you're going to see uh, people specialize a few cities into stacking multipliers <laughs> for a lot of science from a few cities. It's going to be similar to Civ 4 in that regard. Yeah, and actually, as you say that, one of the hands-on previews, PC Power Play, that was published on the 23rd of January by David Wildgoose, talked about how my impression of the combination of the loyalty and governor systems is that they, among other things, rebalance the perennial sieve tussle between growing tall and spreading wide. Of course, it is, do you develop a handful of big cities or spam lots of little ones? I think Rise and Fall is an attempt to rein in wide play and give tall more of a chance, quote-unquote. Oh, more Civ Five stuff as opposed to Civ Four. Can we stuff. get rid of that cancer concept, please? Let's let's just dump the cancer concept. What Civ Six is doing, and it is good, is creating more incentive to grow. It's still good to expand. It's still good to get more cities. You just yeah. actually have to manage your amenities, and you want to specialize some cities to do things effectively. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's not inherently bad for wide play. Like having six more 10 pop cities is better than not having six more 10 pop cities you're as a wide player you're still going to have an advantage there but now you actually have to manage your cities a little bit it's not just okay well let's grab 30 cities at you know pop four or seven and go nuts and this can easily out compete someone who manages their cities more effectively uh, so you can have like 20 to 25 cities that are better managed outperform so there's some trade-offs there there's meaningful choice to be made when you have this kind of mechanics now i don't anticipate these mechanics being well balanced initially so <laughs> i expect some problems with the loyalty system and maybe maybe with the pop thresholds but i'd be less worried about that uh, but as concepts i feel like these are things that will improve the game because you actually have choices to make and depending on the circumstances they'll be different that's good that's good for the game you know, if that is the case, we want to have more taller cities. It's going to make the uh, entertainment complex more feasible as an actual thing you want to use. So yeah. that helps. And again, not always. And that's good. Yeah. You will want to use it, but you will not always want to pick it. Yeah. Some of these changes are also trying to get us to build more of the districts that most people ignore. Exactly. Like, yeah. because when we were looking at the game before it was released, it's like, okay, we're going to have specialized cities. But that wasn't quite the way it was because some districts were actually good and some districts you didn't need. So you could just get away with low pop cities. And I think they're trying to rein it back to the, no, we're going to have some specialized cities and, uh, you know, these cities will be this kind of city. And you know, so I, I appreciate that that's what they're trying to revamp to make it the way they wanted at the beginning. You're going to have to think about housing more now and amenities more now, too. The requirements and Absolutely. interactions between the game systems are actually going to be a bit more robust if these mechanics work as they appear to be designed, that is. Mm -hmm. So I can talk about governors if uh, we're done with loyalty. We know that in terms of governors, that's the most direct and immediate way to boost loyalty is to send a governor to a city. So it, it, it makes sense to segue into governors next, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So governors, a lot of them have very specific uses. 
And um, some of them are more for building up your nation. Some of them are more for specific types of yields like uh, faith or gold. But uh, in general, they're mostly for loyalty pressure, I'd imagine. It's really hard to say because, you know, we don't have a very good idea of how the meta for governors is going to be. Some of them have some really good abilities. As courtesy of Wall of Souls, all governors improve the loyalty of the city to which they are assigned by 8 per turn. But then again, what does 8 per turn mean in the context of other values? We're not certain. And yeah, it takes 5 turns to assign a governor before his or her bonuses kick in, except for Victor, who only needs 3 turns to establish himself in this city. But I look at them as kind of 6 domestic and 1 foreign. And I say foreign because Amani the Diplomat can only be assigned to a city-state. And if you look at her promotion tree, it talks about foreign cities within nine tiles gain plus two loyalty towards your civilization. Or your other cities within nine tiles gain plus two loyalty per turn towards your civilization. So they're all producing loyalty. They're all improving on the pressure. And as you said, Drew, each of them has their own specialization in terms of what they can do for your empire within the specific city that they're assigned but it kind of sounds like got this one that can be assigned to a city-state and it's spreading its influence to nearby city-states. That could be a source of contention. Well, isn't uh, Amani it has a fall-off each tile, the loyalty bonus? We know that it's within nine tiles, gain plus two loyalty per turn, so that would be her effective area. So if she's assigned to a city-state yeah. and you want to forward settle on that city-state because you're thinking, I want to have some units here that... I can use to protect them if necessary. And also, hey, if I settle towards this city-state, then their units, if I become their suzerain, can actually help with the defense of my civilization. But if you place them there, then even if you're not forward settling on a city-state, when she's assigned to a city-state, she acts as two envoys. Yeah. So if you're the first person to meet a city-state and you're like, well, this is really nice. I'd like to become their suzerain. I need three envoys. Assign Amani the diplomat and boom, you're their suzerain. Yeah. I think a lot of it is the opportunity cost. Like, yeah, she can do that, but there's a lot of other governors that kind of really get your sieve going rather than... I'd have to, to see just how powerful Amani really is. I have her kind of in the middle of the pack as far as uses, but maybe when I play the game, that buff will be more important. Well, I think it depends, too, like uh, what kind of city-states you have available. Because if you're going to get something that's really strong, then picking up earlier might make more sense. Otherwise, you might go for science or something else instead. Or you'll be like, I haven't met a city-state yet, uh, but I already have cities. It'd be nice to get some governors. So then in that case, Amanda can just sit and wait because there's nothing you can do with her. You can't send her to one of your own cities. So I kind of pointed her out at the start just because she stands out as the different compatriots. Yeah. Now, there's some discussion on the Siphonatics already about whether you're going to try to level up uh, governors a lot initially or just get a bunch of them to manage loyalty and use the, their lower, like their tier one or first picks. Because even the first picks on a lot of the governors are pretty good. And we're guessing right now that we're going to try to get more governors first and then worry about leveling up most of them later. Uh, but that could change based on the situation. could also be whether or not you're going to play wide or tall. No, tall versus wide isn't a thing. Screw that. it just depends on what's going to give you the best deal well a lot of them have their best promotions toward the end of the tree which you know obviously these things come out when uh you research certain civics so honestly we just need to have a good feel on how many promotions you're going to get by the renaissance era or something like that because until then you know we don't have a great idea well and the governors can be reassigned as well 
That's also important to know, which makes me think of, oh, unlike in, say, Civilization Four, where you would have great people, and then once you put that person in a city, they're there forever, whereas, say, in Civilization Revolution, hey, you're great people, you could reassign them. Hey, we've got a concept of, I realize a governor is not, quote-unquote, a great person, although... They, they seem to be even – actually, they're they even a greater person, actually. <laughs> a greater person. <laughs> I think it will also depend particularly on in the early game whether you start getting more governors or whether you start going the promotion tree. I think Monthar's point about if you're going tall versus wide as much as even I kind of cringe at that comparison. If you only have a couple of cities and you're getting all these promotions – and you're sitting on them. I mean, it's true that once you get a promotion, it's not like, oh, I'm going to take that promotion now and I want to substitute it for another governor. I mean, once you've got that promotion, I'm sure you've got that promotion going forward. But it could very well be that early on, I'm kind of hemmed in here. I've got a couple of cities. So I'm going to have a couple of these governors plus a many or you know, send it to a city state or maybe not. And in which case... I want to use these inherent bonuses that you get going up the tree, mostly these incremental percentage things, because then you also got to look at your land, right, and improving your land and whether that's going to be worth as compared to getting another governor and trying to spread your cities out. Uh, To me, early on in the game, your initial cities, I would think you would want a governor, but that also very much depends on like one of these here, which one gives you like plus one builder charge, for example. Well, you construct a builder. How long is it going to take for me to construct that builder in this city? Oh, that's really going to take a very long time. I'm not really certain it's worth that. Maybe I'm going to put it into another city or hold off onto it. I'd rather promote a governor instead. I guess the nice thing about the governor thing is I don't feel like there's, yes, you are going to want to get all the governors first and then start worrying about promotions, or you want to start promoting the first or the second one once you get it until it's time to get another one. It's lots of interesting combinations here. You can only have so many fronts for loyalty, whether you're playing tall or, or wide. If you're playing tall, you're probably not going to have much issues with loyalty anyway. So, yeah, I guess you can just have less governors and just focus on the promotions. Whereas, I guess if you're playing wide, you focus more on the loyalty aspect of it. Yeah, putting those governors on the front with other civilizations and moving them around as necessary until you're able to establish loyalty in that city without them, establish them otherwise. You know, you do lose quite a bit moving them around. I think it's a five-turn switch. Uh, last I heard, that doesn't scale by speed, although it should, and maybe it will by release it time. It should, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty significant. If you're spending five turns with no government influence at all because you're shuffling them around, that's uh, that's going to hurt you over time, especially if well, you're I trying mean, to optimize. And besides, if you clear continent, you don't have to worry about loyalty. Come on now. At least not from other people's pressure. You're not going to need dear governors just for that. Well, yeah, you're going to have to watch. Like, hey, I'm going to swap this governor out of this city because I need the pressure here. Yay, I saved that city. Oh, wait, the other one that I took the governor out just flipped. Uh, Oops. You can always substitute military once you're rolling, too. Well, that's true. Hey, you want loyalty? Mm, my units so will give you loyalty. Because the city will flip, but it won't have walls initially, at least uh, not for what we're seeing right now. And it will have, it'll get a couple units that are contemporary to the era. But if you have a good military, like if you're rolling people up like a carpet, you, you just send troops from your back line and just wipe out anything that flips while your main force just crush everything. And that's assuming you're not in the late eras where you can just basically nuke or bomber and para-drop everybody. We'll get to that, though. Yeah, like, (laughs) we don't need to worry. Like, there is one way to make sure that your city doesn't get flipped, and that's to to surround yourself with uh, your own cities. So, like, you can just take more cities and then you don't need to worry about it. 
But in that case, if you know you're going to do that, do you want to spend the five turns of lost yields from whatever you're getting from that governor, plus put it in a city where it's going to be a much weaker multiplier for a long time, most likely? Well, you don't put it in a city that you're going to change it again, like very soon. That's true. But even so, like captured cities take a while to regrow, to restore their buildings and all that. So you're not just losing the five turns to move your governor there. You're also losing yields compared to where it was previously, most likely, unless your cities are dumpster fire. But then you're probably not going to be conquering that many people easily. I suppose. There's an Amani promotion that I think is quite nice. It's called the promoter, which keeps down the rebellions, which is something uh, problems with specific when I'm taking uh, capital cities and then they just bam rebels all the time. Oh, the promoter, the plus four amenities in in the city. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's one I run into a lot in multiplayer. (laughs) I could see, okay, I've got my core cities. They're established first. I'm building them up. I want to have a governor in there, depending upon how I'm specializing that city will determine what kind of governor I'm going to have in there, because it seems like we've got the choice from the beginning, which order we want to go. So I put them in there, I start expanding outward. If I'm not seeing that, hmm, there's an issue with loyalty because now I'm on the border with someone else, I would absolutely not say don't move the governor to the newest city just because it's the newest city. You would only want to move the governor when it's looking like it's going to be in peril of being influenced to the point of becoming, what, what are they calling it, a, a free city? Which probably at that point, who knows how long it'll stay a free city. I mean, free cities can be annexed by neighboring civilizations. So it's kind of an emergency placement for those cities that you've just settled or the cities you've just captured, like Phil, you were saying that in order to be able to take advantage of that, particularly when there's all these percentage bonuses for anything that's promoted, to me, the governor is simply a stopgap for those new cities in that moment until if and when I can build them up to the point that it would be worthwhile having the governor there for the longer term, or I'm conquering, or that civ is now forward settling me, so now I need to put the governor there to help put some initial pressure back on there in order to get them to stop. Otherwise, they can just stay right where they are. And I mean, loyalty, it's always contingent on uh, the ages as well. So there's so much to really weigh in. There's no final meta, I guess, on what you should do with your governor's. When I look at the governors, other than Manny, the one that jumps out at me, before I kind of refer to uh, Liang, the surveyor, because all builders trained in the city get plus one builder charge. So it's like, oh, hey, I'm China. Uh, (laughs) And then China could have five charges. Well, good for them. That one also has a 30% production toward a lot of good buildings that will build you up. So like, yeah, I really like Liang or Liang. I don't know how you would say it, but uh, she uh, is very good at building up new cities. And Magnus has that as well. He's got the one where you can spam settlers without losing pop, or you can make black marketeer and uh, prevent the need to find specific resources. Although, I wonder if you still get the penalty for using a unit that you don't have, like iron. Like, you can make it, but you get the penalty for not having the iron. I would hope not. If they're saying strategic resources are not required in the city, then if you don't have that strategic resource, but then you turn around and get the penalty, I would say that was a mismatch between an existing mechanic and a new mechanic to not close that loophole. That would actually be cringy. That would be bad. That would hurt, yes. That would be bad. I also look at Pingala. Pingala? Yeah, that was a great one. Their base, the librarian, 20% increase in science and culture generated by the city. So, hello, Capital. Yeah. Like... (laughs) That was exactly the first thing when I saw him. You just stick that in the capital and just sit back and relax and get a bunch of yields and great people. 
And then there's researcher plus 20% production towards campus buildings in the city, uh, which goes along with the 20% increase in science and culture generated by the city. I mean, I would expect that your capital for most, if not all, the game is going to certainly be your science generating powerhouse, or at the very least early on in the game, because it's your main city and or your only city. Wow. Keep in mind, of course, you'll have a lot of stuff built by the time you get this governor. The fields are nice. Yeah, even if it's not the capital, putting it in any large city is going to be really good. But it really depends on whether or not you need the yields versus uh, the loyalty or something. It's sort of a question still. I think you're going to be moving the science one less frequently than most yeah. of the others. Yeah. <laughs> well, if for no other reason than the fact that Victor can move in three turns instead of five, I think he's the one that's on the move most of the time, in addition to being the military one. You know, increased city garrison combat strength by plus five. I'm like, oh, okay, that's the initial one. The units defending within the city territory get plus five combat strength, or cities cannot be put under siege. If that's the city that you've just gotten in a war with the Civ, and there's this loyalty pressure, and mm, it would be nice to have an increased bombard from that city and the units within that city being able to help defend it in order to keep it, plus the loyalty, all of those things combined really put Victor in the spotlight. He's like leading the charge of your governors. Yeah, because of everything that already stacks in the game, new sources of plus five are pretty dangerous. Yeah. So having that is uh, pretty lulzy, uh, potentially. Although you'd need to get him there. So you're basically your enemy would have three turns to get out of there. <laughs> okay, maybe you just open up Victor, but would you still like boost him up in general? Why not? No, I, I wouldn't just do it in general. I, that would be uh, reaction promotion. Yeah. Yeah, you basically, you take a city on the front and you shove him in there if loyalty's a problem. And maybe it shoots and does contribute something, but mostly he's just a loyalty shuffler. You know, yeah, you can build up Victor, but I think you get much, much more benefits of just using the other ones that actually make your empire better and don't have to worry about the defense. You just use him for the loyalty and that's it. But yeah, that's just my impression. That's great in a fringe kind of situation, but why don't I just construct a couple more units and then I'll have nearby combat strength of something even greater than five and it can also move <laughs> even more readily than Victor, even though Victor is pretty speedy compared to his counterparts. In our chat, Northern Light says, Reign of the Financier has land acquisition as a base ability. Acquire new tiles and city faster. Mm, yep. That's yep. nice, but... As a base ability, I really don't know what faster means as number one. But number two, it's probably, if I'm settling my city well, then within the initial hexes of the city, I've got something for my builder to do in order to improve those tiles. And then by the time I'm ready for something else, either my border has already expanded, I've had increased culture in the city, and the culture borders have expanded at Hello Again Pingala for increased culture, or I've got enough gold generation that in those edge cases, I'll just go ahead and purchase that tile because I'm ready to improve it or I'm ready to use it like maybe it's a natural wonder in the water or something like that. Great Barrier Reef, for example. It's not so much that Reyna is bad, it's just that given the other governors that we're talking about here, I don't think it's as good initially. It's, it's far more situational. Like, okay, I forward settled you. I want to get these new tiles faster before you can, opposing Civ. And I also want to increase the pressure, and I don't want to have to spend a fortune on buying hexes. So, you know, get wrecked. The one thing that Reyna has that is like, ooh, the one that lets you uh, straight up build districts. Kind of, I have to districts with gold. Yeah, with gold. I have to wonder how much gold it is and how much it's going to be affected by district cost. 
The big problem with settling cities mid-game, which seems to be one of the focuses in this mansion, it's like, well, you can build cities in the mid-game, but man, because of the district cost algorithm, it takes forever. So being able to build them at a reasonable price is uh, something that I think would be quite nice. Also in our chat, Sal Sirio, uh, Thorborn, past guest on the show, has said that Victor's best use would probably be in the capital or the holy city, if that is different. And I asked, how would that be? He, he said to help to prevent a domination or religious victory, he would make it harder to take those cities. And from my experience, <laughs> spies tend to get the most out of the capitals, but he helps defend against that. Well, to prevent a religious victory, I, <laughs> I suppose if... Your religious center is your capital, and people are bearing down on you. You need that little extra oomph, then in that case, if you think that city is in peril, then it would make sense that you have that governor established and you have some level of combination. But because, as you said before, you can move governors around at any time, I don't think that I would want Victor to be in the capital until close to what might be the end of the game because I'm about to win a religious victory. I think that's far more situational for him to be in the capital. Or it's, uh, hey guys, I've been surrounded by all of these really aggressive civs from the beginning. And you know, Pingala, I'm just going to swap you and I'm going to put in Victor here because I'm about to die. Yeah. Or I can just... belongs in other people's <laughs> capitals. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that was kind of the way I was looking at it, too. It's like, yeah, I can do that. Or I can just take their stuff. It would be annoying to have to deal with a really defended capital with Victor, you know, as a player trying to take them. But that depends on whether or not the AI actually does that. You have enough strength in a battering ram. Like, okay, you can't see the city, but you can break the wall. Now the city can't shoot you. Yeah. Uh, so... I mean, at that point, it's just surround and pound and don't let it heal. Like, just bring it down one turn. It's not that bad. And I mean, even the Victor thing where it's like, oh, you can still still heal uh, even a siege. Like, that's not really a big deal. The big problem has always been taking down the wall. If the walls are down, you can if you have an actual force instead of, you know, nothing, you can take down a city in one turn to yeah. most. Hey, guys, the Civ has no military units on the map. Hey, we're just going to walk in and take their studies. Oh, my gosh, it's 80 strength. Um <laughs> 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 I guess there are two more governors that we haven't really talked about yet, and Northern Light brings up one of them in our chat. Magnus the Steward has the Ground Baker ability as a base, plus 100% yields from plot harvests and feature removals from the city. I would think this can be abused when combined with production cards and overflow. Yeah? Yeah, we've been talking about that a little on Fanatics already. <laughs> And then the last one, of course, is uh, Moksha, the Cardinal, whose base ability is religious pressure to adjacent cities is 100% stronger in this city. Well, if you're thinking about a religious victory from the beginning and you're settling cities, it would be nice to be able to apply that pressure to your cities and anybody else who chose to forward settle on you because it says adjacent cities. So that works quite well. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I admit that this governor is nice, especially if you're going for a religious victory, or even just a culture victory, that helps too. But the thing is, Civ 6 religion can be completely ignored in order to win the game, and therefore Moksha's ability can be completely ignored in order to win, whereas you can get better governors that always will help you instead of just only specific areas. It's kind of questionable, but if religion is good, then sure. Well, why not? the other problem is that the way religious pressure works, it is a lot more useful to remove your 
opponent's ability to generate any pressure whatsoever than it is to simply increase your own. Yes. And that, mm-hmm. so <laughs> it can help you, but this does not look like an early governor, even for somebody who's going religious oriented, because yes, you want to increase your science and their ability to fight as well, just like every other nation, as Jusain said. And also, the, what you're going to get out of just pure religious pressure early on is not going to help. And the early faith yields or whatever, mm, that all takes time to get going. As you were describing that, Phil, I just had this vision of two competing supercomputers. And it's, <laughs> hey, Moksha, go in and, oh, yeah, I'm going to improve the software. It's going to be able to compute this much faster and this, that, and the other thing and protect against viruses and intrusion and stuff like that. Where you could just go over to the other supercomputer and unplug it from the wall. And then, oh. Okay. Yeah. I win. Well, yeah. I'll just send an inquisitor and get rid of your religion. I unplugged your religion from the wall. Goodbye now. <laughs> yeah, or send units and take the city, and then you can throw all the missionaries you want on it, or just <laughs> yeah, yeah, remove the religion entirely. <laughs> yeah, I see a pointing moksha in situations where it's you know. I really don't want to move any governor that I currently have, and I just captured yet another city, and there's fringe pressure. Oh, Moksha also applies plus eight loyalty per turn. Okay, here you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I was about to say, like, party reduced her to this. You, okay. Or you could just make it for just uh, a default loyalty, and then just. I mean, it's slower than Victor, and then you're like, yeah, just put it here and have fun. <laughs> All right, guys, Victor's busy. Well, plus, there's also his uh, Tier 3 Citadel of ignores pressure and combat bonuses from other religions. So it could be helpful if you're fighting somebody that's running their the cards to get the bonus attack, or they've got their religious built for bonus against other civs. I mean, I guess, but for me, it's still put the thing that religion is completely optional compared to everything else. Like uh, as far as the yields go, I mean, you can even just use the faith for a great people, and I, I argue that it's better used that way. So, like when it comes to religion, yeah, you know, the religion game is nice. You know, and I definitely distinguish in this game between faith and religion, because even as someone who's not going for religion, faith can still be a benefit to me, because A, cheaper great people, plus we also have, you know, some abilities to purchase units with faith. So as I'm looking through the promotions for the Cardinal, I'm looking for helping with faith generation. Like, give me a reason, even if I don't have a religion, to give me that faith output so I can apply that to something else. And there's nothing directly that does that. Mm. I mean, sure, plus 20% production towards holy site buildings in the city, but I need to have a holy site district to begin with. So, I don't know, maybe if I'm a conqueror and I'm taking over a sieve that has this really extensive religious infrastructure, maybe that would be helpful because I would still like the religion in these cities that I've captured to remain the dominant religion because, hey, they chose some pretty good tenants. And so I'm going to put Moksha in that city that is producing the most of that to help defend that and push that. And I really don't want to be focused on getting rid of someone else's religion. But if I'm strong enough militaristically or scientifically or culturally, I'm just going to use Moksha to kind of put a stop on whatever their progression happens to be. Or I'm going to use that as kind of a secondary push to get rid of their advantages because, oh, are you not getting a whole bunch of gold now from all the cities that are following your religion? Oh, that's because I've taken over this other religion and it's mine now and I'm getting rid of yours. So I do see a place as we think about it more and more, but it's definitely not, for me, going to be someone that I'm adopting early on. 
And it's not going to be somebody that I'm going to be paying that close attention to. But if you are going for a religious victory, then by all means, go for it. It is nice to see that there's enough diversity in the governors that I think whatever your play style happens to be, you can say, hey, there's somebody here for me that I can actively use and make interesting strategic decisions towards that victory type. Each Civ will be able to have one unique type of alliance, so uh, you'll be able to have five alliances total if you're into that sort of thing. And all alliances will give open borders, and high-level alliances will also give defensive pacts. And the military alliance specifically will give you shared visibility, so you can't just get shared visibility from all alliances anymore, which, okay. Aww. Aww. Anyway, uh, but so you can change alliance types each time the alliance discovers expires. So it means that like you're in a level two scientific alliance. This means that when that is up, that doesn't mean you're going to be bounced back to a level one alliance. If you're trying to do culture, you'll still be at level two culture or level three if you're moving up. This also means that if you do get an alliance, you're going to want to be staying in that alliance because you get more and more benefits as the levels go up for your all of your alliances. So this makes alliances more valuable, which means that I think it's more likely that the AI uh, and the players are going to be more interested in doing them. Oh, and also alliances will give you diplomatic visibility. And there is a use in that because without it, other civs, you can see that there is governors in certain cities, but you can't see which governor it is. And apparently, if you have the diplomatic visibility, you're able to see it. So that helps. How do you move from one level to another in the Alliance? Like, is it, oh, I just finished X number of turns on this level one research Alliance, and then, hey, let's go ahead and renew that, and then it's not interrupted, and now it's level two? Or how does that work? One point per turn, and it boosts if you are making a trade route to that sieve, and also if a trade route is coming to your sieve as well. There's probably a lot of other modifiers that we don't know about, but those are the two that I know about. And they go up. It doesn't seem to be slow. It seems like you can get to a level two alliance fairly quickly. Oh, so like alliance points or something? Yeah, there's an alliance point bar at the top oh. of the diplomacy screen. Mm. Don't remember the level threes, but I can say level twos with a pretty good uh, surety. Level two science, you uh, will get a Eureka, which I believe is going to be one that neither uh, Civ has. Yes, that you and your ally have not researched, yes. Okay. The culture one is really interesting because put in a trade route into the other Civ's city and you can get a, an extra great person for each of those districts that could get great people going in that city. So that's quite nice. It also completely ignores loyalty. If you are having a cultural alliance with a Civ right next to you, then there is no loyalty pressure, which I think is fantastic. Oh. oh, there's nothing like to break up an alliance like, uh, hey, man, my French city just became a free city and it's probably going to flip to you because of your uh, pressure. Yeah. Love you. <laughs> like, <laughs> it should also be noted specifically on that is that like just because I'm having a cultural alliance doesn't mean the other AI has to be having a cultural alliance with the same Civ. I can be getting a, a cultural alliance from... Civ Y, and they can be getting a scientific one from me. Cultural uh, influence is definitely going to be weird when it comes to that. 
I guess it's also similar to the questions about governors and are we going for more breadth of governors or are we going up the promotion tree? It's going to be, okay, yeah, we can have one specific alliance type. And as the alliance continues over time, the alliance itself levels up and looking here at Welling of Souls by accruing alliance points. So it sounds like, you know, you get into, say, a research alliance. And as long as you are doing something which you would be doing anyway, like, oh, I, you know, plus two science from trade roads to your ally and plus one science from trade roads from your ally. Yeah. So you're sending trade roads to your ally. As long as you're doing that, then you'll eventually get to the point of level two, so long as you're able to sustain that alliance with that civ, because it's not, I signed the alliance with you today and it's permanent. It's not a permanent alliance. It's something they're going to have to maintain some kind of diplomatic level right yeah it's the same way as it was before they ask you to renegotiate it uh every yeah number of turns. we're going to revisit the value of this to our sieve oh do we have to be declared friends for this yes of course okay um yeah that would make sense yeah it seems that being friends is going to be easier because the developers kind of want alliances to happen so they can't <laughs> be mad at you all the time as they are now there are other alliances. The economic one is pretty simple. You get gold from each other. I forget what the second tier bonus was. I think it was um, something to do with envoys. Yeah, uh, bonus envoy points for every city-state that is tributary to your ally. Don't really have much to, to say specifically on that. Okay, so you're an economic alliance with a particular civ. Let's say, you know, you're the Aztecs and they're Rome. Okay, so Rome is the suzerain of, I don't know, Amsterdam. So now you get city-state points towards having more envoys in Amsterdam yourself. Did I read that correctly? Maybe. As I could certainly see that being a benefit. I mean, there are times where, you know, I don't want to be your suzerain, but I guess I'm really thinking of commercial cities. And I know there's the change coming with the rise and fall expansion, but even still, I would really like six envoys here for as long as possible. I hope that your suzerain isn't someone that I find myself at war with, but if so, so be it. But for now, it would be worthwhile. But hey, I don't have to worry about using my own city-state envoy point banking. I can just get that from an alliance. Sure. That's nice. There's also a military alliance, which the tier one level is uh, if you have two civs, I, I believe, who are not allied with a particular civ, they will, and you're at war with um, the same civ, then you get a plus five combat strength bonus. And then religious? Religious, I mean, it's kind of a weird one. I like to fade some faith, but also... <laughs> you can say, hey, stop spreading your crappy religion on me. And they'll say, oh, okay. And then they won't stop trying to convert you. Or at least that's the way I took it. It was kind of a, a weird definition. I don't know if someone else took a different take of it. It's less about, say, I'm going to get into a religious alliance with you because I like your religion and I want the benefits of the tenets of your religion in my cities. And of course, you would very much like that because then it's spreading your religion, whether or not you're going towards a religious victory. So it's less about that and more about we're just going to mutually respect our own religious influences and we'll go influence other people and not influence each other. The weird thing about that is, like, is it saying, okay, we have a religious alliance, but I'm also trying to go for a religious victory, so how does that work? Because, like, hey, I, I want to win the game, but I also am going to respect that you're a different religion. 
Well, I mean, I could see someone going for a military alliance, even if, say, I know you're going for a domination victory, I'm going for a scientific one. If I'm in a military alliance with you, then you're not going to be attacking me. You're attacking somebody else. And in the meantime, I'm able to not have to worry about constructing military units to defend from you. I can just work towards continuing my scientific infrastructure and then, oh, I'm sorry, I won. Thanks for the military alliance. <laughs> I, I guess also... It, you can just specifically use it on a, a sieve that is already in your religion, so you don't run into a problem, I guess. There's that too, yes. I doubt you're going to be running into five alliances at the same time, but <laughs> if you do, I imagine, or rather, if you're going for like three, I imagine the first three are pretty good, maybe a military one. Can't imagine a lot of religious alliances, but okay, maybe. I know one of the themes on our Christmas special, the third Dark Girls playing Civ specifically looked at alliances, and even though there wasn't a lot known about alliances at that point, other than they existed, a common message was, hey, this gives something more to do diplomatically. I do like this system, because otherwise there really wasn't much reason to be uh, allied, except for diplomatic bonuses, which, you know, who cared, because didn't matter. <laughs> except for shared visibility, but there really wasn't much reason to have an alliance, honestly. There was reason to be half friendship, but alliances kind of pulled you into uh, defensive packs, although it appears that defensive packs do show up if you're level two or three. I'm so glad that we know as much as we know about alliances. I know on the last episode, we briefly did a little side look at civilization beyond Earth, and hey, you know, there actually were some good things to be said about it, and we acknowledge that. Uh, when I saw alliances, I just thought of, wait, is this beyond Earth, and we're in an alliance, and this person declares war on this other faction, <laughs> and now I'm at war with them too. What? What? <laughs> now, Northern Light points out earlier in the chat that one thing about alliances is that they come in civil service. So, in the Middle Ages, or you know, rather the medieval era. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so you spend the time up to and including the medieval era to find other civilizations, number one, cultivate relationships with those that you want, so by the time alliances come around, you're already frenzies, and away you go. Yeah, you guys already have a long history together, and you can go, hey, alliance? Yeah, I don't think it's reasonable to have alliances at ancient era. That's a little ridiculous to me. I think it's probably better that they... Uh... I understand the historical argument about having alliances sooner, however... But that's already the way it is, isn't it? But gameplay-wise, no, the gameplay needs to trump the realism. Now, you can have lots of examples of alliances before the medieval era. However, just in terms of gameplay purposes, yeah, I think you need to be able to establish yourself, and the other civilization needs to establish itself mm -hmm. as something that is worthwhile, something where you've already benefited from, oh, we have existing trade routes, oh, exchange delegates... You haven't declared war on me. I haven't declared war on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. This alliance invalid with declaration of war. Filling out the alliances to be a little more diverse, to make you mm. think a little bit more about, well, what kind of alliance do I want? In addition to when I want it, as opposed to, oh, hey, alliance, sure. But at this point, yeah, I don't really get to that question because, <laughs> oh my gosh, how, I'm not even friends with you yet. Oh, well. Here is a specific issue that I can see happening, especially if you're using all of your alliance slots. You run out of a specific alliance. Like, I'm done with my commercial alliance. It's like, I want to switch to another one, but you already have uh, agreements with the other four. So it's like, hey, hold on for like eight turns so I can switch that alliance type because I need to switch the alliance type. But, oh dear, I, my agreements with all these other sis, I can't switch it out to something else for now. Oh, geez. <laughs> mm -hmm.
Aside from what we already know about emergencies, you know, levy units uh, burn the cities to the ground and can fail the emergency. Uh, it, emergencies can create a forced peace if two people are already at war, which is interesting. Yeah, if it's like, you know what, I'm currently at war with that person. If I join and they join, then we're no longer at war. Now, that's an interesting choice. It's like, I mean, it doesn't preclude you going to war against them later, but if it's like, I'm three turns away from taking their last city then maybe you don't participate, even if you like the idea of the emergency otherwise. Because there's nothing to say that you can't somehow take some kind of action against that sieve yourself outside of the direct emergency participation. You're just not going to get the benefit if you succeed. And conversely, you wouldn't get the negative if you fail. Sure. I'm going to try something. The mean team, you're about to win, okay? You're the one who's about to win, and I'm in second place. Okay. Okay. So I want to win, all right? I go up to you and say, hey, the mean team, I don't want you to win. Is it okay if I win instead? Uh, <laughs> so, what you, so how do you respond? Uh, sorry, wrecked. how do you respond? Well, yeah, well, get wrecked. That's pretty much okay, his response. Well, shoot. Okay, well, that means, damn, okay, the mean team, I'm going to declare war on you. And then I'll take some of your cities, and then you won't be able to win that victory you're about to take. No, I think what... No, you, Sally. The world will come to my defense against your filthy warmongering. I hereby proclaim an emergency. Well, yeah, I was just about to say, then you're going to become the target, (laughs) because a civilization that is leading in some victory type has just conquered another civilization's city. So you're leading in some victory type. So I don't know, maybe Phil's going for a science victory, you're going for a culture victory, you don't want Phil to win, so you declare to prevent him from doing that, and then you take one of his cities, and now there's a military emergency against you, and then you don't win. Against me, instead of the person who's about to win. Yes, because you're the aggressor. Yeah, but they market yeah, it and as... And this is a broken mechanic. <laughs> and now I win because I was in third place and y'all both lost. <laughs> they market it as a broken mechanic by design. You should not have any mechanic that encourages game throwing and causes the AI to game throw. From what I'm reading about emergencies as they stand right now, this could change by release or it could change in the future somehow. I don't know. But right now, based on what I'm reading, will trigger emergencies. The AI is going to game throw if it participates in some of these emergencies without question and without debate. They're, they're going to throw the game by propping up someone else to win as a part of their reaction to emergencies. This is a problem in Civ 4, and this is one of those things in Civ 4 that did not need to come back in future Civ iterations. My... When I'm thinking about this, I'm expecting my expectation, especially going back to the quote-unquote fun AI way of going it, is that emergencies are going to be much, much more likely to be triggered on AI rather than players. What I'm makes you think speculating. that? I don't understand. Because like, if you're taking cities, you're probably leading in some kind of victory condition. I anticipate, at least for the military uh, emergency triggers, that I'm going to trigger on every game. I mean, that's fine. I won't have any trouble defending it, but... <laughs> The reason I think of that is because through all the articles who talk about emergencies or all of the the streams that we've seen so far, emergencies have only been declared on AI and not players, as far as I know. I know that that doesn't mean anything. It's just speculatory. Does the AI not declare if you're too strong or something? Like, what's... I don't know. <laughs> or what are these guys doing? <laughs> Wasn't the point of the emergencies to cripple somebody who's getting too strong? I mean, that's that the stated reasoning. But, but when you act- look at what works- triggers them, it doesn't seem like that's it going works- to function. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, the way it triggers is completely opposite of that. Because uh, yeah, like- if, if you're trying to stop that runaway, Mackie, what's the best way to stop that? Go smash them in the face. Yep. <laughs> Go smash them in the face. And all and four out of the five of them will trigger an emergency if you do that. Yep. Um, 
That's just... uh. (laughs) Yeah. We've mentioned a military emergency. We've got the nuclear emergency. A civilization has used a nuclear weapon on a city. Okay. That one is reasonable. If somebody's tossing a nuke, they are in extreme danger to everybody because they have nukes. And uh, especially if they're the first one to deploy a nuke, they they are a very, very threatening civilization that can off anybody. That emergency is fine. I'm fine with that one. There's also a religious emergency. A civilization has converted the holy city of another religion through a religious spread action. That one, to me, is also reasonable yeah to a point yeah to a point it's not i mean the nuclear that's that's an emergency for everybody a religious emergency yeah that's completely understandable either you can view it as oh geez they're about to win or hey i'm also going for that i haven't managed to do that yet i'm about to lose let me join on this action (laughs) there's the uh city-state emergency a civilization is captured and it's occupying a city-state so, are we going to be declaring on Macedon pretty soon? Is that those <laughs> every like, time Macedon takes one? Nope, emergency. That one seems very wishy-washy as phrased. So, does that happen the first time that a civilization yeah, yeah. does that, and every time a civilization does that? Like, how do you decide that? The, is the world in a permanent state of emergency? Because <laughs> 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 the it, amount What's the benefit for winning that one? What's the benefit for winning that one? I already forgot. Gold and increased trade route income. Failure, target gains gold and increased trade route income. Yeah, okay. We're, we're going to be doing that every game. <laughs> <laughs> On one side or the other. <laughs> oh, oh, by the way, the reward for a religious emergency is uh, for everyone who's part of that emergency uh, will gain a relic, and the failure would be a target religion's gains uh, increased pressure. The gold pool is in every emergency, and it's based on the number of participants. Yeah, a thousand yeah. per potential participant. There's no, oh, hey, you did more to realize this emergency being nope. successful. Oh, okay. Nope, you can just. All right, guys, at our back. co-op, let's um, let's pass so the city state back join and it forth. And just, just uh, do nothing. Sit back and sit get back your money. And let them do the work, <laughs> and you get the money. Oh, so it's the group work strategy. Okay, gotcha. All right. <laughs> that said, I don't, feel like, I don't expect AI to uh, do the job <laughs> for me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if, if you do that, you're probably going to fail. Actually. <laughs> Would you like to fail this emergency? The, the military emergency failure seems like a fail to me, too. Target games plus two combat strength on attacking a member unit with a city strike. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> why would you? I guess I don't want to go to war with this civilization because I've got an alliance with them or something would be the only reason not to participate in a military emergency then. Like, I, I failed. Big whoop de doo Plus two combat strength. I'm so scared. Save me. On city, it's not on like all their units or something, which would be legitimately bad. <laughs> yes, yeah, just attacking a member unit with a city strike. How specific of you on top of it? Thanks. Yeah. Or of course, then there is the betrayal. I-, I do like just the name of betrayal. Betrayal emergency. A civilization has declared war on another civilization with whom they had a high level alliance. So is that high level alliance? Two to three. Time? Is, is I'd have to imagine it's two. At least. I don't know, but I imagine this is it's another game thrower one potentially. Because okay, somebody's like Tony turns out from victory, so you break alliance and attack them. You broke my alliance. I'm going to yeah. throw a, an emergency on you. And, and so now, rather than trying to stop the person who's about to win, the other AIs are all going to dogpile the person who betrayed the alliance. <laughs> like, Whoops. come on, man. Yeah. It's questionable. <laughs> they should probably be piling on that sucker like the moment I broke the alliance. <laughs> Forget me. Like, try to win the game. 
I'm not protecting this thing anymore. Go stop it. No, or at role least play. don't stop me from stopping it. No, role play. Role play. That's how you do it. Yeah, no. Screw role play. What's the benefit of winning and uh, being the target of the uh, betrayal emergencies? Oh, yeah. The reward is a permanent combat strength bonus against the target. We don't know what that combat strength bonus is in terms of percentage or an absolute value. If it fails, the target gains war weariness reduction against the members. See, I the, like I think the numbers were like <laughs> a minus two or something, something kind of small. Shouldn't I just um, betray somebody just to become a target of this and win a lot of reduced war weariness from basically well, emergencies young? are based on chance. You can't force an emergency to happen. It's, it's kind of it's random that it happens. If you piss everyone off and betray an ally, you have a good chance of having someone come after you, I'd imagine. You know who really would want to declare war on another civilization with whom they had a high level alliance? That would be Australia. What? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say Mackie specifically, although, yes, also Mackie. <laughs> <laughs> Makalu has been known to oh, do I thought that. you were referring to Mackie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And that's just because of Australia's inherent ability. Oh. Ability, but well, that's like a player would think of doing that. The AI necessarily won't. <laughs> we know Mackie. We know a player would think of doing that. <laughs> yeah, her name is Mackie. You know, well, I think of doing that. Yes. Thanks for the production. I wonder if you can trigger an emergency on this. Uh, it all depends on how often they come up. And they, and yeah. like every source is saying it either doesn't happen or it's like you get one every once in a while. Okay. Now, if you do have, say, that city-state emergency multiple times, does the effects of the bonuses stack? <laughs> I hope not. Oh, I, God. I it shouldn't, but God knows with this game. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I imagine that I imagine that they put a stopgap that you can't have more than one, one emergency at the same time. We do it, we win it, and we do it, and we win it. Are Stacking we get bonuses. The bonuses twice. <laughs> I, this is going to be some like paradox level game breaking junk if they leave that in. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> Make a super ultra trader outs. Okay. <laughs> global game eras in addition to the civilization-specific technological eras, we've got, based on score, you'll either be in a normal age, a golden age, a dark age, or a heroic age. And if you do not meet the minimum number era score by the time the new era arrives, then you will find yourself in this dark age, and it's already been referred to the dark age policy cards, which are available to you only in a dark age. You get uh, plus 100% production to naval raiders who gain plus 2 movement. Yields double from plundering trade routes, but minus 2 trade route capacity. Or you get all units combat strength plus 5 while making a melee attack, but you cannot heal outside your territory. That one was already mentioned. You can start an Inquisition with one Apostle charge. All religious units are plus 15 religious combat strength in friendly territory, but minus 25% in all of your cities. You can get plus 1 trade route capacity with domestic routes providing plus 2 food, plus 2 production, but you can't train or buy settlers or settled new cities. You can double science in cities with a holy site, but you lose 25% culture in all cities, or 100% experience, combat experience for all units, but plus two gold to maintain each one of those military units, or you can get plus 50% gold in cities with a stock exchange and plus 25% production in cities with a factory, but minus two amenities in all cities, to which some people have pointed out, you know, there may be times where you actually don't want to stay in a normal age or get to a normal age, but stay in a dark age. And then I guess in that case, you just need to uh, watch what your era threshold is for the new age and 
have a decent idea of what's going to give you more error score and time it so that you can adopt these policy cards, which I'm assuming would automatically be removed if and when in the future you find yourself in another error type. I think in the previous episode, there was kind of like a eh, idea on Georgia. But now that we know how the historic moments work and we know that she gets air score along with getting the golden age bonuses, I think Georgia's got a little bit more going for it now. We know that there are dedications that go along with each era. They have different effects. So there are about a dozen total. Uh, if you are in, what, a dark age and a normal age, you get one, whereas... If you are in a dark age, it opens yourself to a heroic age. Heroic age is when you're in a dark age and you go into uh, enough air score to get into a golden age. Yeah, okay, yeah, then the golden age becomes a heroic age, in which case you can have three dedication bonuses instead of one. Which, having a golden age provides bonuses to loyalty times one and a half and other game systems, but makes earning future golden ages slightly more difficult. And I think this was all mentioned earlier, that having a dark age hurts loyalty in your cities and makes you vulnerable, but gives you an opportunity to earn a future golden age more easily, plus opening up these dark age policies. So Georgia gets the era score on all of those three dedications, then yeah, you get perpetual golden age. As I look through our known dedication bonuses... There's a lot of them. There is a lot. I think it's like 10. Or about a dozen. They're generally like, hey, this one's science-focused, or hey, this one's culture-focused. I like the monumentality, which is the plus-two movement for all builders. Mm. May purchase civilian units with faith. Builders and settlers are 30% cheaper to purchase with faith in gold. So, okay, I can go around and start improving all of my terrain that I would have otherwise done, but it would have taken longer to buy a builder or construct a builder or try to go capture a builder, what have you. That, that's really nice, because some of these are specific to the age, your dedication bonus, whether it's a normal age or a golden age. And if you can adopt three of these that then lasts, or even just the one that lasts the entire time of that era, then yes, that could also help you get even more era score in order to get you out of the age that you're currently in or help keep you in the age that you're currently in, if that's what you want. I think it's worthwhile to talk about them more once we actually have the expansion and get a chance to play with them. Yeah, Just that one really jumps out at me because I don't need to know anything more about the expansion. I just like the sound of being able to purchase civilian units, so that's settlers as well as builders, and I guess. Yes, yes. With faith as well as gold, and at a discount. Settlers are always incredibly expensive to buy. Does that also include like engineers and archaeologists? And- oh, archaeologists. Aren't those civilian units? Did it say civilian units? Or did it just say settlers and builders? May purchase civilian units with faith. Builders and settlers are 30% cheaper to produce. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just the builders and settlers are the cheaper ones, but maybe you could purchase an archaeologist then with faith. I think the specific code for this dedication is only for settlers and builders. You can buy all of those things, just not without a discount for settlers and builders. And then when it comes to the historic moments... This is a return to, essentially, I mean, it's a timeline, right? It's a timeline that we had in previous civilizations. I'm thinking Civilization IV most recently, although that was something you would only see at the end of the game, whereas this looks like it's something that you're just going to see as the game is unfolding, and then you can go and look at it at any time and see a record. How often do you forget what you were doing in your game? I mean, yeah, even if, even if it is like, you know, hey, I, I played two weeks ago, I don't see how reading the historic moments is going to suddenly make you f- remember, oh, yeah, I was doing this. 
I kind of look at it as what I wish we had in terms of in-game notifications, which would be even more useful. To <laughs> oh, oh, hey, X number of turns. It'd be nice ago. if the notifications uh, had color coding or something. But okay. yeah, I hope that the historic moments will actually lead to seeing how the game is taking track of those in-game notifications. It'd be like, oh, well, what turn was that? That so and so is starting to construct that wonder. I, I get a sense of perhaps how long it's going to be before they do that, but. I just kind of like it as, and based on what we know in terms of historic moments, it's things that you're doing already. So you're being rewarded, you might say, for doing things already. So then how is that particularly strategic? Well, there probably, I would like to think there are some things in there that maybe it's not that you wouldn't do, but you might change your priority. Because if you know, hey, if I accomplish this, I'm going to get this error score, then that's going to allow me to go from like a normal age to a golden age or oh crap, I don't want to leave this dark age right now. I'm enjoying this policy, so I better delay doing this because I know it's going to give me this era score. Then that is actually impacting what you're doing in the game and when. Or what if it's something that being the first at doing this and to get this really big bonus that you wanted to get to get in there, but you already did that earlier. So you could use it as a reminder that, oh, I've already done that. Now i got to find some other way the extra score I'll yeah, absolutely. We know, like, for example, your civilization adopts its first tier one government plus two era score. Get out of chiefdom for the first time. <laughs> you know, your religion launches an inquisition, a great prophet founds a religion. You have completed your first campus with a starting adjacency bonus of three science or higher, plus three era score. But then there's also other things, even though we don't know the description, like in terms of the moment. Let's see. Artifact extracted. There's something for the archaeologist. Barbarian camp destroyed. City-state army levied. First corp, first fleet, foreign capital taken. Great person recruited. Oh, okay. <laughs> Meet new civilization. Oh, there's a difference between great person recruited and old great person recruited. There's stuff here for desert city, snow city, tundra city. Yep. Oh, travel village contacted. Yep. Pretty much play the game, get points. Well, that is a really extensive overview of the features such as we know them in Civilization VI Rise and Fall. One new first look since the last episode. I approve of this, if for nothing else, than the unique infrastructure, because I love me some golf. <laughs> really, Dan? Yeah, really. <laughs> no, really, he does love golf. Speaking of which... It's true. Scotland, which I don't think we've seen before in a Civ game, have we? We have not, no. Anyway, ish if you want to count the Celts. <laughs> they're, no, they're the not-Celts. <laughs> <laughs> Their historical agenda, Flower of Scotland will not attack neighbors unless they break a promise to him. Uh, likes those who do not war with neighbors and dislikes those who do. So he's going to be uh, not liking the Aztecs a lot, huh? <laughs> the civic ability. Scottish enlightened bonus science and production in happy cities. Bonus great engineer and science points. And if I remember right, I think they also said something. About and really happy cities that bonus is higher or something. I yeah, ecstatic cities double all these amounts <laughs> for every city. So that means you get an additional ten percent science and ten percent production. Hello. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also the great people. So uh, Scotland would like your amenities. <laughs> <laughs> Trade. Um. <laughs> Overall, when I'm looking at the design of Scotland, I'm looking at a Civ that wants to make peaceful expansion, get a lot of alliances going, especially a cultural one to help the great people going out, and basically just peacemonger and use the CB to, quote-unquote, help an alliance member and probably take the city in, in question and take some more. Yeah, 
sit back and get your science victory. And if you need a little defense, you can have a Highlander. Leader ability is, let's see if I pronounce this right, Bannock Burn. If I butchered that, I'm sorry. Gets War of Liberation, bonus movement, and city production in the first 10 turns of a Liberation War. And that can really play into that emergency with city-states we were talking about earlier. He's really going to want to jump in on that, probably. It's not even just the uh, the city-state. It, it can also just be uh, an ally's... Uh... Yeah, an ally city's been captured, yeah. Yeah, but that happens more often with city-states than at least early on. You're not going well, to have that. I think now that we have more, alliances, uh, more focus right. on alliances, I think there's going to be a little more of it. As mentioned, the unique unit is Highlander, but I do not know what its bonuses are. Five percent uh, extra combat strength and also i think it was plus seven if it's also in a hill it's a ranger replacement well i'm i kind of shrug my shoulder at that honestly yeah because here's the thing that is about the rifling tech it's two techs after field cannons <laughs> field cannons has uh, two range instead of just one but also if you're going toward rifling it's way away from the techs that actually matter for the sieve because education is off of that tech and uh, everything with uh, the industrial zone is also off that tech. So Highlander's fast defensive units, sure, but they're far away from every industrial or scientific tech. So yeah, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me for it to be a ranger. though. You know, everybody that's ever watched the movies were probably expecting it to be a swordsman replacement. Well, I think the idea was they wanted to make Scotland a peacemonger sieve. And having a strong one-range unit that can shoot other units if they get into the territory is kind of what they were going for. They wanted a unit that was defensive more than offensive. It, it, it makes synergy with the rest of the sieve. So I, I think it's okay. I think it's just meh, just the unit in general. It sounds more forced, like they just wanted to have a range replacement because they didn't already have one, and we got to stick it on one of the new sieves, I guess. Still better than the Rough Rider. <laughs> that is true. It actually is better. It, I would build it over the Rough Rider, yes. A unique terrain improvement. Golf courses. You know, gains this is what Dan was happy for. And so the gold. And, and gains bonus culture if next to city center and entertainment district. Now, does it have to be next to both at the same time, or is it a bonus for each? That's what I'm kind of confused on. Yeah, I think it's just for the one, but it, the thing that they did clarify is that you could only build one per city. And that was something that is probably better, because when I first saw this, I was thinking, oh my god, this is Civ Five trade route spam. Two gold and some other yield, then you can just spam those all across your nation, get the gold, keep your population low enough that you know you can keep yourself ecstatic. But it, it, that's not how it works. You can only have one for each city. It's still good. It's probably one of the best uh, unique improvements I've seen. Yeah, and it comes with the Reformed Church Civic. So yeah, because I mean, how else do you get extra amenities besides entertainment districts? Well, most of it comes from luxuries. Right, but. Now you don't have to have as many luxuries if you're expanding a lot. You can plop down a golf course and help to take care of some of your amenity issues. Yeah, one golf course it's by itself isn't that much. But, I mean, if you put one in every city and, you ha and you're running about like 10, we'll give you two free uh, luxuries. So that's pretty nice. But I think you'll probably be wanting to build entertainment complexes anyway for the amenities uh, to make sure that you're at ecstatic on all your cities. 
So. Well, yeah, of course, but it just means he's going to have an easier time of getting that bonus than, yeah, say, other civs that just keeping away the weariness. Absolutely. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call, Call in, in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121-288-7659. That's 44121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. It's not all roses and unicorns, but... (laughs) What? Damn it, I need a refund now. There's the title for the episode, It's Not All Roses and Unicorns. (laughs) Double dare you. There are no unicorns in the Civ 6. I want my money back. <laughs> Am I taking us out of here? Yeah. All right, get out. No. Thank you for <laughs> no joining imagine. us on Polycast no. episode. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Polycast episode 299. I'm the me and team, and today I was joined by Dan Q. Now you're under pressure. Under pressure. Makalua. Hmm, loyalty strategy. Just burn everything. Drew Sane. Don't forget the Civ adage. If you see something... Slay something. And Monthar. Well, let's just have some golf and be done with it. First looks, the hands-on previews, the 150-turn previews. Digital Trends' Will Fulton said that the highs were new world eras and dark golden ages added uh, needed to structure. New systems feel smartly and thoroughly integrated and, quote-unquote, more Civ 6 to love. That's generic. But he does say the new features feel more like tweaks than changes. These additions seem interesting and mechanically sound, but we still aren't sure whether they'll give 6-6 the spice it needs to really come to life. It's strictly an improvement over the base game of Civ 6, and fans will enjoy it a lot, but we're not yet convinced that it brings the innovation for which we had hoped. Hmm. PC Games ends. Uh, Richard Scott Jones says, A final verdict is pending, but my appetite has certainly been whetted. And as with Civ 5's two expansions, Rise and Fall adds enough to the mix that base game already feels difficult to return to. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think that's fair. If the game is playing at a decent pace, which I doubt right now, but if it does, then what the extra considerations added by just the things we've covered today are really not trivial at all. There's a lot extra to think about there when you start thinking about how they interact with what you have in the game already. So in contrast to that, vanilla is going to seem a lot weaker once you're playing with these mechanics. I can easily see that just by looking at what you have to consider and using them. Absolutely. Yeah, despite what uh, was said on digital trends, that this adds another layer of strategic decision-making to the whole game without majorly shaking things up. <laughs> I don't know, just based on what we heard, I think there's a lot being shaken up, really. You know, shaken, not stirred. I mean, you like this stuff, but I don't trust any of these write-ups anyway. <laughs> like, I'm much more apt to trust a even random YouTubers, because <laughs> they're not bought out, and they usually have more experience with the game than the quote-unquote professional reviewers. So, whatever. I like that anecdote in the PC Power Play article about that one guy who joined into an emergency to liberate a capital, which he won, 
pocketed the gold and then just kept the city anyway. <laughs> oh, nice. New emergency. <laughs> very good, very good. And I certainly don't disagree with you, Phil, that the live streams that we're seeing from people within the Civ community, those that have played the game more or have experience with the series are apt to give us a more in-depth look. But the fact that, first off, we can get information about Civilization Six: Rise and Fall from people who are not employees of 2K and for access. It's true. I have uh, an intro ready, but like... <laughs> oh, you want to do the intro to your saying? Oh, I can if she's not going to be here. Okay. Although... Uh, okay, I'll do the closing like I scheduled then. That's fine. Yeah. Oh, no, you, oh well, yeah. hold yeah. on. Well, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Absolutely fine. No, you fine. Did. No, you no, no, no. Ready. I, I yeah, can do the right. opening anytime. You do it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Besides, the outro, it's nearly as good. I have, although before that, better. I need to know one thing. Or was something about Monthar. Hey, Monthar, what's something that you like? No, I enjoyed this. I, hey, I've got an intro ready. Hey, Monthar. <laughs> well, I had... Nice. <laughs> Speaking of civilizations, um, it seems like we probably know the identity of the next one because, oops, live stream, misclick in Civilpedia. <laughs> Whoopsies. What's this? A district unique to certain somebody that replaces the encampment. Yes. And we're referring to the Zulu. It'll probably be Shaka. I mean, it would be else? very odd with that for it not to be Shaka. Ah, uh, speaking of better answers. What, they have to go to another podcast? What? <laughs> nope. <laughs> we will not have seamless transitions. Get wrecked. We're at least five years we're away from that. Chat. We've only uh, been damn. doing this for a decade. I mean, why would we need to have seamless transitions? Uh, where's the chat for this thing? God damn it. Uh, lost it. <laughs> there was a features explained video. While at the 3 minute and 26 second mark, YouTube user Robert Johnson points out unannounced leader portrait on the sidebar. Seems to be wearing a straw headdress. Hard to make out a perhaps a Polynesian nation. And yes, you see it in the diplomacy screen. And that is a face that we have not yet seen. So well done 2K and Firaxis. Maybe that was purposeful. I don't know. It's probably giving them too much credit. A lot of people are saying it's Mipachi. That would be a new Civ if that's them. They've not yet been in a Civ title. Yeah. yeah. They certainly like making new Civs for this game. Yeah. All bets are off, too. Speaking of um, <clears throat> working toward victory types, this doesn't work at all. But we're, I, <laughs> do, are we done with uh, Governors? <laughs> I think that's a pretty good segue if you're going to talk about alliances, but you don't want to turn around and talk about alliances because then you would make a good segue, and we can't have those things on the show, Drew. Hey, so let's of talk about alliances then. <laughs> <laughs> How about we just fix the controls? I, I haven't said that yet this episode, and that's <laughs> an issue, so like, let's get that done too at some point. Speaking of uh, not declaring an emergency, because you're probably going to play an incredibly peaceful game. Oh, wait, no, this isn't even my topic. Whose topic is this? This is still features. This we're is still, still on features. Yeah, oh, we're still on features. It. This is great. Okay. Agents, so this is still you. You do not get to defer your responsibilities just like that, sir. <laughs> okay. 
That's right, folks. Polycast episode recordings live every other Saturday, 12 uh, noon Eastern time. <laughs> Would this be a shameless promotion? Like right yes. now? Okay. Yeah, yes, uh, it we're is. We're in the middle of the damn cast, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, Dan. Well, two things. Number one, there are people who will be listening to this episode afterwards. And number two, how many times have you watched a television show and then there's a commercial break, air quotes, for the show that you're already watching? We know what happens. Yeah, exactly. If you want to put a commercial break for podcast and then you need to put your professional pre-recorded blah, 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 not just in the middle of us doing other chatting. And by the way, we're on. Record date? January 27th. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.